Wednesday. So let's look together, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse number 1. Now it came to pass, uh, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt. Even to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most pivotal passages of Scripture in all the Bible. We're going to approach it in two sermons. However, the reality is we can spend many, many weeks together in this one chapter alone. What we find here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant, uh, God's covenant promise with his servant David. And the summary of this covenant can be seen, as we read just a moment ago, in verse number 16, where God says to Nathan to declare to David that your house and your kingdom shall be established before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That is a summary of this 
Davidic covenant, God's promise to David. I, God says, am going to establish your throne forever. The Davidic covenant, it's important. Now, we're not going to dive into all the nuances of uh, biblical covenant history, but do let me give you briefly this evening, since we are here in this pivotal chapter, the five foundational covenants that are explicit in the Scriptures, uh, covenants that God makes with man, each one building upon the other. For together, these Five covenants form the storyline of God's redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ. A promise that was again made and began in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where God said he would defeat sin and he would crush death through the seed of a woman. And it's building upon that promise that God establishes five covenants at least Five that we can explicitly see in the Bible that form this storyline. The first covenant is known as the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant or uh, God's covenant promise to Noah. It was here that God enters into a relationship with Noah. That's an important part of the covenant. God chose Noah. He entered into a relationship with Noah, promising to Noah that he would save his family from judgment. And then, of course, after the rains came and judgment fell upon the earth, God extended the promise of his covenant by declaring to Noah that he would never flood the earth again in terms of destroying it. So that's why we have the sign of that covenant through the rainbow. It's a reminder of that first covenant that God made with man, the Noahic covenant. What's the importance of this covenant? Well, it was through Noah and preserving his family, keeping him alive when he destroyed the rest of the earth. It's through Noah that God kept his promise to defeat sin and to save the world through the seed of a woman. Had God destroyed Noah and his family along with the rest of the earth, then that promise would have been Void. So we see this first very important covenant, the Noahic covenant. Then we have the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, or God's promise to Abraham. Remember, God enters into relationship when he begins these covenants. He enters into relationship with Noah, and he enters into relationship with Abraham. He chose Abraham. He entered into relationship with Abraham, and to Abraham he promised that through him a great nation would be birthed. And that through Abraham's seed, this nation that God would form through him, that through that seed, through that nation, that all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. So they're building upon each other. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Then we have the Mosaic covenant. Again, just as God chose Noah, God chose Abraham, he chose Moses. And he entered into relationship with Moses. And the basis of God's covenant promise to Moses, that he promises that he would take Abraham's seed, the the nation of Israel, and he would identify them as a treasured possession. He would make them a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation. Of course, through this covenant, we have the giving of the law. 
And by it, what God is doing here, he is saying to the nation of Israel that as Abraham's seed, as the nation of Israel, as they give reverence to God's holy law, they would be a people who are vastly different from all other nations, thereby reflecting the glory of God. And in so doing, facilitating the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So he says, Noah, I am saving you because I am going to preserve your family to fulfill the promises of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. To Abraham, and he says, it is through your seed, Abraham, that all the nation will be blessed. To Moses, he makes this covenant. He's saying, as you establish this nation, Moses, you will train my people to live a holy life, reflecting my glory, facilitating the promise that God would fulfill through the giving of his Redeemer. And that brings us to the fourth covenant, which is here in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Again, God chose David. He entered into a relationship with David. And the significance of the Davidic covenant and how it plays in God's covenant roles with his people is that throughout the Old Testament, a royal line for the Messiah has been expected. That a part of God redeeming his people meant that God would do so through royalty. And what we see in this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, is this very covenant that God makes with David as summarized in verse 16. That David's kingdom, David's royal lineage will be established not for a long time, but forever. And then the Davidic covenant turns into the fifth covenant, which is the new covenant. The new covenant. The ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises, of all God's covenants in and through Jesus Christ course more on this as we go but notice at least for now that through these covenants God's promise and plan to save the world it became clearer and clearer for instance God preserved the seed of the woman through Noah God initiated redemption through Abraham God established the nation of Israel through Moses God promised an eternal shepherd king through David, and then God fulfills all of these covenants through the giving of Jesus Christ. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7 is extremely important because the thread, the thread that holds the Bible together is God's promise to give us Jesus. That's what we read from the beginning To the end. This is about the fulfillment of God's promise to give us a Savior, to give us a Messiah, to give us a Redeemer. And David is a crucial link to the fulfillment of this promise. And that is why we have this covenant in 2 Samuel 7. But there's some context to lay out before we look at the covenant itself. And then, of course, next week we'll spend more time on David's response to the covenant. So let's, let's look at the context and how all of this plays out. First of all, I wrote down here in my notes, we have a change of pace. We have a change of pace for David. At this point, three important things have happened in our study of 2 Samuel. The kingdom has been unified under David. That's the first important thing. 
The second thing is that Jerusalem has been captured and made the capital city. We identify at this point as the city of David. And the third important thing is that the ark of God has been returned and is dwelling in Jerusalem. It's within that framework that we come to verse 1 of chapter 7, and here's, what, and here's how it reads. The Bible says, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. So David is dwelling in his house. The house, if you'll remember from chapter 5, that the king of Tyre built for him out of cedar trees. This was his palace. And the wording here is there to help us see that things have dramatically changed for David. He's no longer a fugitive hiding out in caves. He's a king living in his palace. And it also says here in verse 1 that the Lord had given him rest. The Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. He's the established king. The consistent string of battles since he was a teenager are over, at least for now. And the ark of God is safe and resting in Jerusalem. There's no family member trying to kill him. The people are united under his rule. The Lord has given the king of Israel rest. It's important to me that we pause here and note That it is the Lord who has done this. There's great emphasis here in verse 1. The Lord gave him rest. I have it underlined in my Bible. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord did this. David didn't achieve this peace. David didn't achieve this rest that he is experiencing. The Lord gave it to him. And I think we'd all agree that this is quite a change of pace for David, especially the way that we've been studying his life since we were introduced to him the day that he slew Goliath. Now, the question is, and I want you to think about this, just in reflection to your life and personality and your way of going about and doing things, the question is, how's David going to handle this? This change of pace. Because in my estimation, from the way we study this, he's good at running. He's good at hiding. He's good at fighting. He's good at dodging, planning, even, we would say, good at scheming. But will he be good at sitting? Will he be good at resting? Will he be good at keeping Still, I think we all have people in our lives, and perhaps you are that person who likes to always be doing something. Perhaps you're married to that person, and perhaps you are that person. You find it a struggle to sit, uh, to be still, and to wait. I mean, you can't vacation because you don't know how to rest and enjoy God's goodness. There's always something to do, always something at home you got to tend to, something at work you need to give your attention. You're always tinkering, always doing 
something. And chances are, if you are that person, as I know many of us are, that after you retire, you'll probably still find a little job somewhere because you can't stand the thought of sitting still, of not doing anything, a change of pace, resting. I get the feeling from this passage that David is very much that type of person. God has graciously gifted him a season of rest, but he's struggling to receive that as a gift. Instead, he's thinking to himself, I can't sit here. I gotta, I gotta do something. I mean, that's all I've ever done. Running, hiding, fighting, planning. I can't sit. I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. There's more that I need to be doing. I could say from my own experience that there is a pressure that comes in pastoral leadership that you often feel there's more that you should be doing or more that can be done or could be doing. Sometimes that pressure comes from within myself. Sometimes that pressure comes from others. Pastor, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? We, we need to do more. Have you thought about this? And sometimes God doesn't want us to do anything but to simply enjoy a season of rest that he has so graciously given to us. Now, why do I bring that to the forefront of where we are? Because this is the context of chapter 7. The Lord has given him rest, and David is fighting against that rest. He feels like we got to do something. i got to do something. Of course, we understand in the scope of David's life, to which we will continue to study in the ongoing chapters, that David does not do good with downtime. He doesn't handle himself very well. When his hands aren't active. And perhaps some of us need to work on that ourselves. So he's going through a change of pace. I wonder tonight, how are, how are you handling the changes of pace that God brings to your life? How, how, how are we as a church going to handle or are handling the changes of pace that God brings to our ministry. The Lord did this. And the wisest thing for David to have done was just to sit there and enjoy it. But he couldn't. And that leads us to the second thing here, a big idea. All right? David has a big idea. He's got a big idea. He couldn't get his mind to stop. Couldn't get it to stop. Imagine, if you will, the setting here. It's evening. He's sitting on the roof of his palace, maybe drinking some uh, house decaf Starbucks coffee. He's enjoying it with his closest confident and spiritual advisor, Nathan. Something's on David's mind. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful evening in Jerusalem. He's enjoying everything as a king, and God has been so gracious and gifted him this, this rest, but something's on his mind. He can't sit still. He's, he's not enjoying the rest and peace that the Lord designed for him to have. And so verse 2 says, look at this, the king, David, then looks to his friend Nathan the prophet, and he says, look, look, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. In other words, Nathan, Nathan, look at this. Here I am in my big, nice palace, and I, who am just a servant of God, I have a better house than the ark of God. David knew how precious the ark of God was. It's the symbol of God's power and presence in Israel. And David is, is saying here to, his, to, to the prophet Nathan, look, I've returned the glory of God to Israel, but instead of resting it in a nice house, it sits behind curtain walls. It's over there in a tent, and look at my beautiful palace, my house of cedar. You see, some of this is cultural. The pagans in these days would build large, elaborate edifices as places for their deities to reside. You see much of this even overseas in international cultures today. So, so perhaps David is thinking that the pagan gods have these nice temples, but the one true God of Israel is represented inside this measly old tent. Now, some of you might think, well, is David fixing to switch places? No, he doesn't even bring that up. I don't think David for one moment intended to trade places with the ark of God. He simply wanted to give it a better place to be housed. So Nathan says to David, look at it in verse 3. Nathan says to David, go. Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, what I find interesting here is David never actually lays out his plan in verse 2. All he says is, look at where I live and look at where the ark of God is. That's all he says. But these guys are so close, Nathan just assumes. He, he, he can read David's mind and his response is, go, David, go. The Lord is with you, man. Go, go do what you want to do. Now, Nathan is the prophet of God. It's important that we remember this. First time we're seeing him, but it won't be the last. Nathan is the prophet of God. And as God's prophet, there is something missing here. What he should have said is, David, let's pray about this. David, let's, let's ask God what he would have us to do. But in this moment, Nathan isn't responding to David in the capacity of a prophet where the prophet is supposed to say, thus saith the Lord. No, 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 no. He is speaking impulsively in the capacity of his own opinion. Go for it, David. The Lord's with you. He'll bless it. And this is, this is not a message for how we who communicate God's word need to understand our role. But let me just say a time out here and how important it is from examples of this that we see throughout the whole Bible that we who have the responsibility to stand before God's people bearing His Word, that we always make the message about the Word of God and not just our opinions. Nathan is not giving David 
instruction from God with this response. He's giving him his opinion. Go, do it. The Lord's with you. He'll bless you. I think it's a great idea. Now, it's important that you understand here that David's motives are absolutely right. He wants to do something for the glory of God. There is no impurity whatsoever at all with what David desires to do here. And we can say the same for Nathan. When Nathan says to him, yes, go do it, that's not impure, that's not bad motives, they are absolutely godly endeavors. But in this instance, in this instance, we don't see that every time with Nathan, but in this instance, Nathan was too impulsive in his response. He did not seek the will of God. And I think, once again, we see an important point that reoccurs in Samuel's history book since we opened them up over a year ago. What we have seen reoccurring here is this emphasis on the limitations of God's servants. The limitations of God's servants. For instance, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Eli got it wrong, the prophet of God. He got it wrong when he assumed Hannah was drunk. Do you remember that? When in reality, Hannah was broken over her condition, bringing her needs before the Lord. Eli got it wrong. He thought she was drunk and out of her mind. Samuel got it wrong in 1 Samuel 16 when he overlooked David and thought Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, was to be Israel's king. He got it wrong. The prophet of God got it wrong. David got it wrong when he thought the best thing to do with Nabal was to kill him. And were it not for Abigail Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, that is exactly what David would have done. Or we could bring up again how David got it wrong by taking for himself multiple wives on several occasions. The, The point that I'm trying to make here, and I think the point that Samuel in this history lesson is trying to tell us, is that the best of men are men at best. Just because you and I are servants of God doesn't mean we don't make mistakes or have poor perspectives from time to time. That's what's happening here with Nathan. Yes, he's a prophet of God. Yes, he's God's man. And he's supporting David's idea, which is very well-meaning. But what is lacking here is God's perspective and guidance on the situation. And I couldn't help in my thoughts on this to be convicted in reflection of my own life. How that as a servant of God, I've miscalculated situations. I'm talking about Jonathan. Fifteen years of pastoring now, Laurel Baptist Church, I've miscalculated a lot of situations. I've responded at times impulsively. I've made poor choices. My opinions, my ideas have not always been right. But thank God for His grace to correct us and to stop us from making things worse and to fix our mistakes and preserve our relationships. We need at all times as God's servants to be people who seek and follow God's wisdom while at the same time ensuring that our ultimate trust is fixed on the one who has never made and will never make one single mistake. The chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is not a bash on Nathan moment. It's just a simple observation that all he is doing is giving his opinion. He's not speaking to David. 
from the perspective of the will of God. So David's big idea, instead of sitting still and being at rest, which is where God had brought him to, he wants to do something. And what he wants to do is good, purely motivated. He wants to build a house for the ark of God. Now, that brings us to the third thing tonight. We have a change of pace, a big idea, but now we have a word from God, okay? A word from God. We're going to spend more time on this section next week, so I don't want you to to, to, to fear how long we're going to be here tonight. But at least note that God's grace in putting this idea on hold is seen almost immediately as Nathan prepares for bed. For bed. Have you ever noticed that at the end of the day when you're lying in bed that you reflect on a lot of things? I'm that type of person. Some of you can probably hit the pillow and it's a matter of like three, two, one, and you're in la-la land. Not me. Takes me a little bit more time. But once I do wind down, I'm out. But, but usually I'm laying there, I'm tossing and turning a little bit, I'm reflecting about my day, I'm thinking about my encounters, things that I may need to be doing the next day. So, so perhaps Nathan here, he, he's reflecting at night on his bed when a word of God appears to him. How do we know this is a word of God? Because verse 17 makes that clear. This is a word from the Lord. This is a vision that comes to Nathan at night. And here's what it says, verse 4. It happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, would you build a house for me to dwell in? David, you're going to build a house for me? Now, you understand this is rhetorical. You want to build a house for God? Verse 11 is the connection. We'll get to it in a moment, but here's basically what he says in verse 11. God says, no, 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 no. Not yet, David. First, I'm going to build you a house. You're going to build a house for me? No, no, no. Not yet. No. I'm going to build you a house. Verse 11. The Lord tells you that he will make you a house. What in the world is going on? I thought David was sitting in a house. Well, follow me, all right? Three quick things about this word from God. Number one, it was a correcting word. It was a correcting word. We see that in verses 4 through 7. God says, you're not going to build me a house, not not yet at least. No, 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 I'm going to build you a house. He goes on to say in verse 6, I've not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I've moved about with the children of Israel, I've never spoken a word to anyone. Whom I commanded to shepherd my people. Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God is saying to David, I cannot be contained to any one place. I cannot be restricted. My presence, God says here, is about my people. Like our journeys in the wilderness, God says, I go with my people. If my people live in tents, guess what, David? I live in tents. If my people are in a place of affliction, guess where I'm at? I'm in that same place of affliction. If my people are wandering, so am I. I'm wandering. No, 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 Nathan. You tell David that this is not time yet to build me a house. I will not rest until my people are at rest. It's a beautiful image here, isn't it? That our covenant God 
humbles himself. This speaks of the condescension of God. He humbles himself. He comes to sinners. He makes us his people. And then he goes with us wherever we go. He travels with us on our wanderings, on our journeys, on top of the mountain and in the lowest of valleys. Guess what God is saying? You can't put me in your little box. No, I go where my people go. There will come a time for a house to be built. There will. And he will allude to that in a moment. But not yet. And not until he is finished with what he has willed to do with David and through David. So the first thing about this word is it's a correcting word. Nathan, you go tell David, he ain't building me a house. Not yet. I go where my people go. And I'm not resting until they have rest. The second thing about this word is he then gives a comforting word, which had to be helpful, right? I mean, because David's motive was right. And we can do this even in our relationships sometimes. When, when you come to somebody with a, with a pure motive, a right motive, and it gets shot down, you know. If we on the other end are not good at coming back with comfort in relation to that, it's, it's going to be a hairy mess. So God, the perfect one, understands exactly how to deal with this. He shoots David's idea down. He corrects him, but he immediately comes back to remind David about their relationship. And his identity in him. He does this in verses 8 through 11. Because he doesn't want David to be discouraged by this. And by the way, we don't need to be discouraged by God's no's. We don't need to be discouraged by God's not yet's. So God says to Nathan, remind David, first of all, and there's five things he tells him that I want you to write. He says, remind him, number one, I have chosen him. He's going to be discouraged by this, but you tell him that I'm not mad at him. <laughs> Things are good in our relationship. I have chosen him. Verse 8, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. You remind him that I have chosen him. Also, Nathan, tell him that I have always been with him. I'm with him today. I've always been with him. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone. Nathan said, God says to Nathan, tell him this. Tell him, number three, I have defeated and protected him from harm. Verse 9, I've cut off all your enemies from before you. God says to Nathan, tell David, I've given him my grace. Verse 9, and I've made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on earth. And then finally he says, you tell David that I will give him and my people Rest, verse 10, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Friend, what a wonderful comfort it is to be reminded of all God has done for us and all God desires to do in us. He's comforting David. I've chosen you. I've always been with you. I've defeated and protected you. I've given you my grace, and I will give you rest. Here's that whole rest thing again. Oh, and by the way, he says in verse 11, Nathan, tell David I'm going to make him a house. Again, we come back to this house. But the Hebrew word for house is different here. He's not talking about a palace. Here, he's talking about a dynasty. He's not saying to David, 
I'm going to build you a palace. No, he says, I'm going to make out of you a dynasty. A dynasty that's going to last forever. It's the promise that God is going to build a kingdom through the lineage of David. So it's a comforting word. And then finally, it's a covenant word. So this word from God to Nathan the prophet to be delivered to David, it's correcting, it's comforting, and it's a covenant. Verses 12 through 16. And again, we see that this covenant is about the seed of Abraham being fulfilled in the seed of David, who also is, of course, of the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. In other words, David, I just need you to know right now that this covenant, it's going to go beyond your lifetime. Do you ever think about that? How that the plans and purposes of God that he is establishing in and around you may not be for you. And it may not be for you to see in your own lifetime. It may be for the generation coming behind you. God speaks to this in David's life at the very beginning. He says, I want you to know I'm going to do something, but it's going to happen after you. It's, it's going to go beyond your lifetime. I'm going to set up your seed, verse 12, after you. He's going to come from your body, your seed. I will establish his kingdom. In other words, God is going to establish the kingdom of David through the offspring of David. Verse 13, he that is this offspring of David, he's going to build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of men. But my mercy will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Now, there's a lot of deep interpretation going on here. The immediate is in the fulfillment of Solomon, David's son, David's offspring. God is going to use Solomon to build this house for the glory of God. And what he's saying here is that God will be a father to Solomon, and Solomon will be a son to to him, and when he sins, he's going to chasten him. But he wants David to know that he's not going to go back on his covenant when his son sins. No, he's going to discipline him. He's going to chasten him because he's chosen him. And it's through his offspring that his kingdom will continue to be established forever and ever. And that's what he says in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, this dynasty will never come to an end. It will last forever. So its immediate fulfillment is not in David, but Solomon. And Solomon's son and so on and so forth. But it's perfect fulfillment. The way that it truly lasts forever is Jesus Christ. We entitled this study a long time ago, The Tale of Three Kings. We've talked about king number one, Saul. We're dealing with king number two, David. But the king who all of this is about is Jesus. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That's David's son. A branch will grow out of his roots, his family tree. 
Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will last forever. And how is it going to come to pass? Upon the throne of David. Upon the throne of David, where God says, I will order it. And I will establish it forever. And in case we have any doubts about it, he says in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, the Lord will do this. And then we immediately, 400 years after the last king, recorded in the Old Testament, we open up our Bibles to the first book of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And do you know how it begins? Matthew 1 and verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, did David understand all of that when God was giving him this covenant? No, probably not. Did the author, the narrator, the one who's writing all this down in the history books of Samuel, did, did, did he understand it? Probably not. But the author of the book, the author of God's word, the sovereign ruler over all things, he not only understood it, but he planned it. And he decreed it. And he brought it to fruition in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the Son of David, who will forever reign upon the throne of David. It's an important covenant. It's a covenant that need not be overlooked because it's through this covenant that the royalty of heaven sits upon his throne as the Lord over all. Let me just say in closing, practically, that if God has brought you to a place of stillness and rest tonight, a change of pace perhaps, wait for him. Listen to him. Learn from the stillness. It was David who said, be still and know that I am God as he writes this. David learned about the stillness of God. And wherever you may be, God doesn't need you to do anything right now. He doesn't want more from you. In fact, God doesn't really need our ideas at all. He doesn't need our agendas, structures, dreams, and plans. No, God has the perfect plan. He establishes the agenda. Do we believe this, church? He establishes the agenda. He orchestrates the timing. He has developed the plan. And he will be glorified in everything that he does. It was a noble desire. But it's not what God wanted. And how important it is for us when God brings us to these places in our lives that we sit that we rest, that we wait for him, and that we listen to where he is leading us.
I don't have time to read it tonight, but perhaps you'd like to write down Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is the psalm that David wrote about this covenant that God made with him. We'll come back to it next week. But for now, may we be reminded that the throne God is establishing through King David is the throne that takes us to Jesus, the kingdom that will last forever. Let's stand together for prayer.